0: radio.ie hosts the irish history show podcast because history matters radio turns 100 years young this year radio's history is powered by radio archives for radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio visit radio.ie
1: Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cothill Brennan, and please visit our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. Check out our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. As always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from theirishstory.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we're so grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. On this episode, we're going to be looking at a very interesting topic, deserters from the Irish Army during World War II. We're very pleased to be joined by Keen Hart, Keane is a historian and serving officer in the Irish Defence Forces, and his new book, Heroes Are Traitors, Irish Deserters of World War II, is available now. Keane, you're very welcome to the show.
2: Guys, thanks very much for hosting me. Great to be here.
1: You're very welcome. Now, why did you decide to write a book about the deserters from the Irish Army during the emergency? And why do you think there is still so much interest in and, and controversy associated with it?
2: Sure. So this topic, of course, it's, I have a vested interest, I suppose, in the subjects being a, as you said, a, a currently serving officer within Obligna But if I bring you back to maybe two years ago, I came back from overseas and I love my research. So I was digging into the newspaper databases of my local home county, of Sligo, and during the emergency period, as a kind of part-time pastime, I like to uh, try and Build stories and, and um, published stories on Sligo soldiers and I kept coming across, during the 19, from 1940 to 1944, innumerable number of small little snippets and some larger articles of deserters being apprehended in the local town of Sligo, being hauled before a, a district court and then being handed over for various reasons uh, to military authorities and back to Finner camp or other local camps. And as I kept going through it passively again, not, not with the intention of finding this information, just the sheer number uh, really did pique my interest. And then I started coming upon surnames that I'd researched from World War I that were pertinent to, uh, to Sligo as well. And I, I just kept seeing this link of this number and the same people and the same families and brothers, etc., and cousins that deserted basically. And that, that really got me going. So then I started going into the military archives, Started just even <laughs> the 21st century method of, of research just googling irish desertion world war ii and then of course being a relatively young guy i didn't realize that these guys had been in 2012 by by then minister for justice alan shatter had been pardoned and kind of nothing really came of that from from a publishing perspective from a researching perspective that seemed to be the kind of end of the story whereas i was only my own perspective just starting to get into it and, and, and get into some of these guys lives and to contact next to Kane and trying to gather gather some flesh on the bone of, of, of the story as such and that's really it was a bit of a waterfall then from then once I started getting into one next of Kane, you'd get into the other that all established contacts with one another back in during this pardons campaign that led up to the Alan Shatter's decision at the time so, kind of just it, it flowed kind of naturally from there. Again, as I stress, not with the intention ever of actually publishing a book on the topic or on the subject, um, but just really w- w- with a passive interest that that just snowballed uh, two years later to uh, to the publication.
0: And Keen, you know, this is a controversial topic, and as you said, you had the extraordinary thing really of a minister, Alan Shatter, in twenty twelve, pardoning the deserters. But there's also a great polemic about this, isn't there? And what do you think are the issues involved? Like, why are people so passionate about this issue what, 80 years on or so from the emergency?
2: Sure, sure. So what I should say from the start, um, as you guys can absolutely appreciate, me being a serving member, there, there can be certain things I can and cannot say um, from, from a personal perspective. Of course, being, being loyal to the state and, and by extension then at uh, the government of the day, I, 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 I kind of have to have... <clears throat> Certain opinions are, are muted, let's say. Um, but what I would say is, absolutely, the polemic of this it, 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 it's fascinating. I think in the last number of years, of course, with the centenary of World War I, a lot of people got engaged, all sections of society, uh, a lot of people got really engaged, and there wasn't much of a pushback, let's say, for want of a better term, maybe from from Republican elements in society. I think a lot of people genuinely generally said, okay, we're, we're, not, um, we're not vindicating what they may be done on the battlefield or, or the British Empire or, or imperialism, we we'll go fighting for imperialism. Let's just commemorate their lives. And, and it was a good compromise, middle ground, I suppose, that, that I'd say the vast majority of our society uh, agreed upon a, 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 and, and came to. It. With this topic now, with World War II, and serving British soldiers that's a bit more recent, I think is a bit more interesting and a bit more controversial. Because the guys that I'm speaking about did not just, of course, uh, fight in the British Army. They firstly deserted a newly established Irish state. So I think there's, the, the link is broken. So I kind of said at the, at the opening chapter of the book, that is this just the continuation of the very, very long tradition of Irishmen serving in the British Army and, and family links established therein and, and so forth? Well, maybe, maybe it's not so, because these guys actually swore an oath of loyalty to the state, which, is, again, is newly established. So guys previous to this generation did not have that opportunity. And these same individuals then, uh, of course, deserted. And not only did they desert, and arguably at a time that the state was vulnerable to, to external actors, and especially in the open salvos of World War II, but then they actually joined the... Uh, "Quote unquote, the ancient enemy, um, and, and from some people's perspectives, even contemporary to the time, this ancient enemy may we well have invaded the 26 uh, county state at the time, um, in order, you know, the issue with the ports, etc. So it's a real interesting one. I think how we navigate, be it come the centenary celebrations or around the centenary commemorations of World War ii and even before that, in the lead-up, how we commemorate, if we do, not just from an Irish Defence Force perspective, but from a wider Irish societal perspective, these gentlemen will be will be very interesting and will be terrain that I
0: don't think we, we've touched upon date. And I mean, do you think that the debate and the polemic over the deserters is also bound up with the debate over Irish neutrality and whether that was a moral position, you know, given the, the character of World War II and the character of the, very, the different powers that were fighting each other,
2: Absolutely. Very, very good question. I think they're absolutely, they're, they're intertwined, they're intertwined to that, to, to, to the point of neutrality. Politically speaking, of course, as you guys are well aware, and as most of the, of the readers will be well aware, De Valera, of course, navigated it arguably fantastically as to how he, he kept us at least officially neutral, but of course with, with, um, with a lot of help to the Allied powers, most particularly Britain, in, in small ways that he could, under the surface, so to speak. With the, with the deserters, it, it's, it's interesting, again, everything that de Valera had done, he'd done with, <laughs> with, with, with a political dimension and, and foresight. De Valera's reaction to the deserters is very interesting. So during the war, there's nothing really said. There, there's nothing said. There's, according to the Chief of Staff reports, which are, are annual in nature, the chief of staff of the defence forces was, was making it pretty well pretty well known to the minister of defence, and then of course he briefed the, the Taoiseach, that there's a bit of an endemic here. We've got a serious structural problem. We've got deserters, in particular, from 1941 to 43, leaving in their droves, especially the border units. Again, so easy to cross the border, uh, strip themselves of the uniform uh, and jump into a British Army uniform. But there's not much said, even ministerial meetings, minutes of meetings, there's not much said. And again, it goes to the the larger picture, I think, that that De Valera always had in his frame of mind and his outlook. In that, if I make an issue of these guys, well, does that have repercussions for his relationship with Britain? Which, of course, (laughs) was shaky, to say the least, on many occasions. And, And again, according to some historians, you know, we were on the brink of, of an invasion at certain key times within that emergency period. So I think he did not want to, to touch it. He did not want to touch that uh, touch that topic. And even you could argue post-World War II, when when maybe Ireland or era at the time is trying to put his tentacles out into the world after an era of isolation to some respect, he didn't really touch the topic again. He just executive order uh, stroked the pen Uh, release these guys from their service there was no military law retribution these guys weren't court-martialed as such some would argue that maybe they would have got a lesser treatment in in terms of punishment if they had been court-martialed and maybe served a bit of prison time and then re-entered society others would argue well do you know what they never served a, a prison stint They weren't vast majority weren't behind cells unless they had voluntarily given themselves up before that or they were caught by the mps military police so, yeah, no, fascinating question. I, th- I think they're absolutely, they're absolutely are tied up. It's a seemingly small aspect to the larger question that you asked there. But I think it's still intrinsic to the whole thing.
1: Now, Kane, if we could go back to 1939, can you tell us what size the Irish Defence Forces were at that stage and how well armed were they? Like what type of equipment did they have? Did they have like cavalry units or artillery Basically, how well were they prepared for a possible invasion?
2: Sure. So straight off the bat, without getting into much detail, extremely, extremely poorly equipped for, for the impending, impending war that seemingly was over the horizon. So the, just before the beginning of World War II, the Irish Defence Forces had approximately 10,000 strength across all corps, across all units, between cavalry, the very, very small naval element that we had, the very, very small air corps that we had, and the various army units and training institutes across the land. Now, what happened was, of course, World War II starts, and there's a bit of a, oh, wow, okay, we may be vulnerable here. Let's uh, let's boost recruitment. Let's, let's boost the numbers. And we do get a couple of thousand in from September to Christmas of 1939. But there wasn't a major, major push. I suppose from the perspective of the politicians and the military commanders at the time is, Ireland's not overly vulnerable here. We've got got, uh, Britain between us, uh, by extension, we got the the British Channel. Then we've got got France, we've got Belgium, etc. But come June of 1940, when, of course, the German German military machine spreads west, France falls, very small neutral countries fall. And then, of course, they're, they're on the coast, the German, Luftwaffe have got access right up to the south coast of Ireland if they want. An hour or two's piloting in, in Astuka and you're, and you're into Cork City. So all of a sudden there's panic at the station. There's a massive recruitment drive initiated from government level. And if you look at the poster campaigns and, and the kind of, I wouldn't call it propaganda, but let's say the, the arguments made for mass and very quick enlistment into the Irish Defence Forces is very interesting. Words like defend neutrality, defend the state, uh, some very fiery speeches as well actually by politicians on the pulpit in various counties to try and, and boost their army numbers very quick. But it's it's all abstract which is, which is very interesting. So they're not saying defend us from Germany, they're not saying defend us from maybe a potential incursion from the British army over the border. It's just defend neutrality, defend the state against this kind of undefined enemy as such. And the reaction, the reaction, in fairness, to this, from the civilian population is huge. So the established strength jumps nearly to 40,000 in a matter of three months, from June through July through August. Come the reports on recruitment 1st September 1940, we're up to nearly the 42,000 we, that we wish to enlist. Now, of course, numbers are fantastic on a sheet. But once you start scraping, uh, scraping the ink off that sheet of paper, there's not much happening. So in terms of equipment, we're completely outdated. We've got very, very minimal, if any, mobile infantry units. We've got a couple of old uh, British-bought, post-Civil War mechanized vehicles. But of course, these things, even if we had so many of them with the fuel shortages that were to come, So in terms of equipment, ammunition stores, very small, very short. Everything that we had bought and everything that we came to rely upon was British manufactured. And of course, with the British Army, in a far more dire situation than us in in Neutral Era, they weren't willing then to actually send across further armaments, equipment, ammunition, even training manuals, everything. Of course, they, they were under severe threat there by the summer of 1940 for their very existence. So any requests that we put in for, for further equipment to, to actually arm the men that we had put in uniform wasn't necessarily denied, but it was it was <laughs> prolonged uh, postponement continuously ongoing. So in terms of numbers, fantastic. But again, to get 40,000 into uniform from a, a strength of 10,000 trained soldiers prior to that has this logistical, administrative, etc., concerns and issues.
1: Well, keen that's what so, I was going to bring up with you next, because mm-hmm. the idea, as you say, of this massive expansion of the army, what are the logistics of getting all those men fed, getting them uniforms, getting them places to sleep? You know, it must have been an absolute nightmare. An
2: absolute nightmare it was. So it's very interesting so even the basic thing like accommodation so when you're enlisted into the defense forces there's certain prerequisites that that come with that so you must of course be given a uniform certain boots a weapon ability to stay in food at specified times so we start peeling back the layers of of what this actually requires so the army doesn't have sufficient uh, qualified cooks it doesn't have enough barracks it starts wrecking Old country homes of of civilians. It starts building these um, wooden huts in green fields adjacent to barracks that are that are in the countryside. And if not, old military camps, old ranges are reoccupied. Every piece of military or Department of Defense land that they can get their hand on is utilized for this expansion. So logistically, an absolute nightmare. You hear about stories of guys that are told to report to such and such a place, but the army can't transport them to such and such a place. So they're, they're, the, in, the infern from that is you just need to get there and uh, guys coming late getting charged for not reporting on time and just funny little stories like that but really uh, on a grand scale we just weren't in a position to do such a thing there were there were units created out of nothing um, as in they didn't exist before there was privates promoted to corporal Without doing a course just straight off the bat that if they had five six seven eight years experience and they were a relatively good soldier they were given the stripes of a corporal and gone off then to train new recruits uh, trying to transition civilians into soldiers so logistically an absolute nightmare on every single front but in fairness to the defense forces um, at the time they managed to do it it's interesting if you read a uh, contemporary accounts uh, of soldiers that went through the emergency and yes you have some very bad ones and I actually highlighted the, the very bad experiences and what they actually done and how they were trained in the book because again that, that had, had follow-on um, arguments as to why maybe some of them had deserted but there are some some positive stories some positive I suppose experiences and when people reflected on it yes there was a, a lot of hardship and even those who had said that they enjoyed their time in the Army, they reflected back and said, my God, the experience that they went through, a lot of hardship. For any Defence Forces listeners out there or any personnel who, who retired or since served and are aware of Kilbride Camp up in the lovely Dublin Whitlow mountains, they know that location there has its own ecosystem of its own. It, it might be sunny and bright everywhere in the country. But when you get to Kilbride Camp up to the ranges today and forever, it's raining. It's miserable. It's foggy, etc. So Kilbride Camp was occupied for duration of the emergency up there, and you had guys living out of tents for three to four months at a time. So the hardship that those gentlemen would have gone through, and even when they were given maybe a weekend's leave, uh, trying to, there's not there's not many villages and towns and uh, social outlets in the vicinity of Kilbride back during the emergency. So. There was a lot of hardship, yeah, a lot of hardship. The experiences of, of the gentlemen during the emergency, even by the contemporary of the times, just given the fact that we had no infrastructure in place for when this uh, this this flood of soldiers joined joined the army, was even by the contemporary of the contemporary days, very difficult, very difficult.
1: Okay, and we talked about the full-time army, the 40,000 men who joined up. Can you talk to us about the reserves, people who'd be expected just to do odd weekend or could be called up in an emergency
2: sure so i didn't go into these guys in too much detail in the book um, as such but i'm sure there's there's many listeners out there who would know of their grandfather granduncles, even fathers that would have served in some capacity in in the old ldf or the local defense forces. i know through my own research i did come upon one or two of these guys who had who had since gone on and joined the british army but that was just more so through, through local knowledge, back in Sligo. But these guys, they weren't necessarily overutilized and um, in the sense that if an emergency was to occur and that emergency being an invasion either by sea or over the, the land border with the British Army, these guys were expected to call up with the, the most minimal of training and the most minimal of armaments. They had weaponry that was dated back to the war of independence and Civil War period those that could not or maybe were, were not willing to, to join the permanent defence forces, either as a duration durationist, that is, during the, the period of the emergency, or as a full-time regular soldier, it would still be under arms post, uh, post-emergency post period. There was still quite, the, the, the number was in its hundreds of thousands. It was, I don't have the exact figure here, but I believe, 150 to 180,000 had to joined some form of an LDF unit. But again, that would have been mostly the kind of the elder gentlemen of the state, or maybe the very young, didn't really fancy going into the full-time army. But these guys were, nevertheless, they were expected to uh, to pony up if an emergency did occur. So they were there. They were utilized on training on, um, there was a, something that was called the Blackwater Campaign in the summer of 1942. I could be mistaken, it could be 1943. And they were it as an enemy down in Munster. Uh, and uh, the PDF or the Permanent Defence Forces asked about the full-time soldiers were attacking them in a massive campaign that lasted over two weeks, taking Cork City as the culminating point of that exercise. So they were utilised, but I wouldn't say in in, in a major capacity because, again, the emergency didn't actually occur in the
0: end. Now, and we're going to get on now to the question of deserters. But just before we do, I want to ask a quick question about the Army's anticipated role and what they actually did. So... What was the expanded defence forces expected to do in terms of repelling invasion and so on, and what did they end up doing during the emergency?
2: I think you've you've hit a, a key question here, and it's actually it will be central to one of the main arguments in my book as to why I would say soldiers ended up deserting. So if I if I bring you back to say the summer of 1940 and and without rehashing it, just restate. That these guys joined in anticipation of an impending conflict. They thought the new Irish state was under threat again an undefined enemy but nevertheless under threat and they joined I would argue for that reason to defend neutral Ireland. However of course come Operation Barbarossa and the German army heading eastwards the threat to Britain, and by extension then using an era maybe as a staging post, or even after Britain has conquered, um, just extending German influence into Ireland, that dissipates. The chances of that decline dramatically. So what's the knock-on effect there is, when the Irish state is under pressure, other departments are under pressure for manpower, fuel shortages of course across the country, so we need to harvest more peat. we need to get uh, people out to the bogs. Well. Here's the state that has almost 40,000 people under arms training for something that now seems relatively, maybe at least for the moment, it's not going to happen in in the short-term future, say from, especially from early 1942 onwards. So the anticipation is for these gentlemen to defend the state. The reality is they were sent out in the bogs to harvest peace in what was described by many as terrible conditions. There was no huts, um, and anyone in I was on the bog myself when I was young, uh, but at least you could get home to maybe a warm shower and a, a warm house at the end of, of, of the evening. But these gentlemen, they were out there maybe for days and weeks on end, in very, very poor conditions. So the bogs was the big one. They are also out cutting trees. There was an outbreak of a disease among the cattle of Ireland. They were put out there, and I think I have it in the book, nearly 100,000 cattle slaughtered as a result. Um, so everything that was anticipated, i.e. doing nice weapon courses and, and doing what a soldier anticipates to do upon enlisting into his, his nation states, our forces unfortunately never materialized. Now for some it did. There were was, was some units that were, that were, let's say, those stationed a bit more closer to the border or down along the south coast that would be that bit more proactive in terms of military training and activity, weapons courses, etc., but but on the whole, on the whole, they were tasked in non-military assigned duties, and if, if this had the knock-on effect um, on morale. And once you lose morale, you lose your soldier. So if you lose morale, you lose the soldier. And unfortunately, I think that was one of the major factors as to why some of these gentlemen opted to desert.
0: So that brings us neatly on, Keen, to our next question. I guess the key question is. Roughly how many soldiers deserted the Irish army during the emergency and were these exceptionally high numbers compared to other armies?
2: Sure. So in total, this, there was no definable figure. There was no exact figure uh, when I first started researching this. There, there were, of course, estimates um, and actually a lot of the more prominent Irish historians from Richardson to, uh, to, to Doherty had, had briefly touched on this in a paragraph or two in their various publications. And the estimate varied from five and a half to seven, maybe a bit over 7,000 deserters. Even if you took that lower estimate initially before I tried to get a more exact figure, you're talking out of an army of an established strength. It never got to 42,000. So you're talking anywhere between 40 to 41,000 throughout the emergency. Four and a half thousand and 40,000 is 10% of the armed forces. So that's a pretty damning statistic as to it was endemic. Desertion was endemic. Now that's only the lower, the lower end of the figure. And my research has has kind of extended that beyond the seven and a half thousand figure. So the main, the main port of call, as such, in order to ascertain these figures, were two sources. So one was the famous, infamous blacklist. Some would call it post-emergency period that the Irish government passed, and that has almost 5,000 names on it of deserters that were, through the emergency uh, legislation, just simply simply discharged from the Defence Forces. So again, because of the sheer scale and number of the deserters, the Defence Forces were not in a position to go through the process, which can be a a pretty prolonged process of court marshalling every single one of these gentlemen, it it, would just be well beyond our capacity at the time. So with the army unable to actually process a a punishment for the deserters, Irish government stepped in and just created this blacklist of 5,000 people and said, okay, these gentlemen will not be uh, eligible for state government uh, jobs for seven years, any pension accruements that they had built up during their time in, in rank and service, was cold, it no longer existed, and a few other penalties as well from that. So that, that was the main, the main uh, document that, that I would have called upon. However, once you get into the, the military police documentation, uh, once you get into especially the annual chief of staff reports to the minister, the figures just just started increasing. So those on the blacklist, just to re-emphasize, were only those that did not either voluntarily come back and stay to the defense force, I'm a deserter, uh, I want to rejoin, okay, and then he was punished in whatever way, shape or form he was. So those who voluntarily gave themselves up were not on the blacklist. Additionally, those who were caught by the military police in their various, um, their various means and ways that, that they did so, uh, and then obviously punished, those are not included in that figure at the end, because again, the whole idea of double jeopardy comes in, these guys were actually caught by the military police were processed via court martial, for whatever punishment they received, and the majority did serve a, a stint in military detainment of some, of some degree or form. So these numbers, once you start going through the annual chief staff reports from the emergency period, and you include the blacklist numbers, those on the blacklist, I'm getting in excess of seven and a half thousand. But again, I, I didn't want to uh, put ink on paper and say, yes, there are seven, five, eight, seven, or whatever it is. I just said 7,500 plus, with, a, with an upper estimate of close to 8,000. So if you talk then as a proportion of, of the Defence Forces at the time, you're talking perhaps anything up to 15% even, 15%, half 20% of Defence Forces would have deserted at one point in time from the established strength of 40 odd thousand during the emergency period. And by any comparison, and there is no comparison really across Europe and we oppose that question, There is no comparison. Ours is by far the worst. And especially if you compare us with the other neutral countries, the likes of, let's say, Spain or something, nothing nothing like this exists. And again, if if you were to to follow on and say maybe why is this? The historic link, I think, between Britain and Ireland and and the easy access by which guys within the defence forces, soldiers within the defence forces could desert, i.e. just across the border, Hop on a ferry across uh, to Britain, failing getting across the border. Give a wrong alias, give the right alias, depending on the recruitment uh, centre and depending on the personality there. They wouldn't care if you're a deserter. They may not even know you're a deserter. Probably wouldn't know you're a deserter. So it was was that ease of access, uh, especially, again, for the border units. You can just imagine if you put it into context or build a little picture. A guy joins up to defend neutral era. And instead of being given weapons courses and and learning uh, military rigour and and discipline, he's put to the bog, which he'd probably have a bog at home to to help his parents harvest the peat there. You can imagine then if he was situated close to the border, some evening he just takes his own leave, or he goes AWOL, laps absent without leave, goes across the border, a very quick cycle to uh, a, a recruitment office in the north, and... Lo and behold, he's in a British army uniform and he's off to fight in the in conflict that he anticipated he, he would have fought in probably a few years before.
1: Is, is it possible to work out, out of that roughly, as you say, very roughly, seven and a half thousand deserters or so? How many of those deserters would have then went on to join the British army or British forces?
2: Yes, so what I'd say is, until such time, this would probably involve um, a lot more people. To, to do so. There's absolutely ways and means. The only problem is at the minute of course with GDPR and I can't, nobody can, can access bar uh, direct next of kin, various service files. Um, and of course you imagine if you're going through seven and a half thousand service files and, and then cross-referencing them maybe with British Army service files, you, you'll be able to come to a figure. So the means and the method or the method to do it is there just the means not at the minute. Think once. Once we're able to access emergency period soldier service files and British Army World War II service files, like we can do now with World War One, and um, which has opened up a, a tour of, of avenues of approach for research, a def, a, an exact figure of that number will be hard to hard to come by. Yes, I've estimated that, that approximately, perhaps fifty percent have joined. And I may lose the listeners now when and yourselves as to how I try to do this, but I'll try and be succinct as possible as to how I came to, to 50 to 55%. It does get a bit convoluted. So what I done was initially I cross-referenced the Deserter Blacklist names with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission database. That is, for those of you who don't know, in fairness, it's an, it's an unbelievable source, but every soldier really who died in British Army service, their basic information and, um, and their dates of death, etc. is all is all on this database. I managed to get absolute guaranteed almost 80 soldiers that had deserted from the Defence Forces into the British Army confirmed that they were killed in action. Now, the higher number of that estimate just by virtue of the fact that a lot of the names are very generic, like a John Kelly. I can't I can't be absolutely cast iron and say that the guy on, on, the, on the blacklist is the same, you know, John Kelly or, 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 or any such name as, as that man that's on the CWGC. So then as a percentage, so if I took the middle ground of that and said a hundred soldiers have died, deserters have died in British Army uniform, and you put that as a percentage of those who died in, against the British Army, you come up with a percentage, and then you cross-reference that percentage where I may lose you. You cross-reference that percentage with other databases and other research and the number of the emergency army traders. And you come to somewhere approximately 50 to 55%. I've explained it a bit more succinctly than that in the book because it's a bit convoluted. It was the only means by which I had, I had managed to war game as to how to do it. I hope that answers your question.
0: Well, that's interesting though, Keen. I mean, you know, just to clarify the debate because we're going to get now into the crux of I guess, the very polemical stuff. But just to emphasize, so we have a blacklist after the war of 4,800 odd names and not all of them joined the British forces. They weren't on the blacklist because they joined the British forces. They were on the blacklist because they deserted. Isn't that right?
2: Correct. Right. So this, as you said, the polemic of this is very important. So if you read certain books that touch on this ever so slightly, it's easy to do so because if you have a narrative or a perspective that De Valera was out to to punish these individuals, and the Irish government was, was there to punish these individuals for specifically not just deserting but for joining the British army during the emergency. Well then you, you'll, you'll naturally fall into, I suppose, conclusion that those on the blacklist were those who joined the British army. But that's just simply not the case. Um, it's, it's simply not the case. I know even, I've done an appendix in, the, in, in my book just on my home county of Sligo, on, on the deserters from that county and nowhere near even, uh, I think it was, out of the 112 that are on it, about 40, I could absolutely guarantee you joined the British Army. And there was 20 or 30 guys there that I just know for a fact, uh, just <laughs> by virtue of knowing the people, knowing the next of kin, um, that, that did not join the British Army in World War II. So yes, as you say, the polemic is, is key here because the assumption is those on the blacklist were on the blacklist because they joined the British Army. That's not the case. Those that were on the blacklist were those that did not receive any form or kind of military punishment by court-martial or other means. Uh, They were not caught by the MPs or did not give themselves voluntarily up. So, yeah, that's a key point because I had gone in with the assumption with my research as well uh, that those on the blacklist were those who joined the British Army. But it's simply not the case. The Irish government didn't even know at the time who had joined the British Army. So they didn't have the information to put those names on the blacklist.
0: Okay. Now... Having established that, why do you think that people deserted? And for those who did join the British Army, why do you think they made that decision?
2: Yeah, so that's that's the kind of central the central question and theme throughout the book as such. And I think again, as 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 we kind of discussed just prior to prior to the podcast here, it's very easy to generalize. And I know in a book with 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 seven and a half thousand plus deserters, uh, there's there's very reasonably probably seven and a half thousand individual reasons as to why they specifically deserted, but nevertheless, I, I know historians we just love to generalise. I think and try and find a common thread uh, that's easily understandable. And if I was to answer that with one with one word, it would be action. So the desire to seek action, uh, less so adventure. I think if uh, there's there's an argument there that maybe to join for. Uh, for adventurous purposes, you know, see the world. But I think that's that one of those, that's the universal argument to join the British Army. And I think if they had had that motivation, they would have joined the British Army before even enlisting. So I think the big one is, the big one is the desire to see action and adventure. Again, not to go over uh, the same territory, but a guy who joins in anticipation of, of conflict um, and sees no conflict and sees rather uh, the exact opposite of conflict, um, rather than being on a range during a bog, can very, quickly, uh, can very quickly lose his appetite for the army. And I think the better soldiers, we, we, have, a, we have a divide, again, for your defence forces and Xers and even just for passive, uh, for passive readers of military history. You, you will know that there, there's a great divide in most militaries between the barrack soldier and the ground soldier. So the barracks soldier is happy enough in, in doing his regimental duties and he'll stay in barracks and he might be, um, he might be a good administrator by all means, but he's, he, he doesn't love the soldiering. He doesn't love the grunt work, uh, being out in the ground, the tactical element of the army. And I think it's, it's, it's these guys who would have joined in anticipation of having this experience, not getting this experience, and then this avenue of approach open to them to join the British army. You can imagine as, as the battle of Britain is unfolding, and despite the censorship, information is coming back uh, to Ireland of the action that's ongoing, North Africa at the time, etc. They're reading all this. These guys um, that love soldiering, they're reading this in, in, in their wooden hut in some green field adjacent to, to a barracks. And they're thinking, geez, I could I could do this. I just have to get on a bike, I have to cross the border, I have to hop in a ferry across. Cross and, and to jump in. So I think maybe the idealism of these guys initially and in, okay, yes, let's defend neutrality, defend Ireland, would have dissipated uh, uh, and that influence would have regressed significantly as era's neutrality was less and less under threat as, as the war unfolded.
1: Well, I think Keen, there probably is a, a tendency to view all the men who joined the British Army, all the deserters, as being motivated purely by the best of intentions and they wanted to defend democracy and destroy fascism. But can you retrospectively put those motivations on them?
2: Excellent question. Excellent question. In, in my opinion, in my opinion, you, you can't. And I didn't want to be too, of course, I didn't want to be dismissive to those who who did do it for that reason. But I think, I, I think with the benefit of hindsight, above all aspects of, or periods of history, I think World War II is, For absolutely the right reasons given the the evil of the the enemy that we fought but retrospectively uh, there's perhaps not not, i don't think it's an overly controversial statement to, to say that perhaps there is retrospectively some good motivation put on some of these gentlemen as to why they enlisted so again maybe if you put it into the context of the time really and honestly how many soldiers could you say Knew how bad Hitler was, perhaps in 1940, 41, 42, with censorship absolutely very tight in Ireland. Could they have said, "Okay, I'm fighting to uh, destroy Nazism"? Well, not really, because they wouldn't have known about it. Yes, there would have been some debate there, pre-emergency period, with the Spanish Civil War, fascism, and communism, and of course we had our Irish contingents going out to fight on both sides. So there was there was a small element for those that were. Relatively educated on it, of, of the ideological divide. But I, I think it would be a stretch to say and, and to, to, to give plaudits, let's say, to all these gentlemen that they deserted with the right motivation in mind. However, I would say, as a caveat to that, is after the war, whether they intended it or not, much like maybe, as I said in the book, the weaponless peasants of, of Russia. Can you describe them as heroes for, for throwing themselves at the German army? You, you probably can because maybe without the Russian war machine, the Nazis wouldn't have been defeated. And then a similar kind of mindset to that uh, with the Irish deserters, even if they did not desert and join the British army for the right intentions at the time, maybe in a few years after it, it, it again, retrospectively, you could see, yeah, it was the right decision. But for them as individuals at the time, did they really have the information to, to state categorically. They went for the right reasons. I, I would argue maybe they didn't. And for those few who did actually give interviews, not a great majority of them had said, okay, we fought to, to defeat Hitler and, the, uh, and defeat Nazis. And a lot of them openly admitted to, to the better pay argument uh, of joining the, the British Army. Less so actually the direct pay, but more so the allowances was the big one, uh, the marriage allowance uh, and child benefits that flowed from that. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. and I almost concluded at at the end of the book by saying maybe there won't be an answer to this because we'll never know the motivations, of course, for all the individuals. But again, categorizing it as we like to do, I would certainly fall down currently at least. I'm always open to change my mind and and as facts and and figures come come to the fore, consider them before making a new conclusion but at this moment in time I, I would say that that no really to your first question that that they didn't know so maybe the vast majority did not desert for the right reasons at the time.
0: An interesting kind of sidelight in your book Kean, is the southern protestant kind of experience so you make a point that first of all during the emergency southern protestants joined up the defense forces in significant numbers but they're uh, roughly proportional kind of among the deserters, I would say. But I mean, I, I suppose, is there an element of kind of residual loyalty to Britain going on a little bit?
2: That's a fascinating one, yes. Um, there's a fellow historian there from my, from my native county of Sligo. Fort um, Dugan, I believe is his name. He wrote, a, he wrote a fascinating book just on, on County Sligo and, and its Protestant community. And as you said, the residual loyalty to, to Britain even after the First World War. I think I think the Protestant element is, is fascinating um, because you have of course you, we know as of today that, that a lot of them a lot of Protestants in Ireland uh, of course amalgamated into the state without much friction at all really and um, some would argue maybe towards the latter periods of, of the war of independence and the Civil war but maybe in, in certain sectors you could argue or certain areas of the country but they largely amalgamated so when when era came under threat as a proportion of the population in the state, they joined up. They joined up, which is fascinating. And the big thing is, if you read some of the other books on neutrality, particularly now, I'm just actually looking at the books as I read, by Brian Durbin, Evans, et cetera, when they touch touching this topic ever so lightly, they realize there's this massive disconnect. So you have a new, a new generation of, of Irish Protestants growing up in Ireland post-World War One don't have that at least formal link to the British state anymore. And the students in Trinity College perhaps don't have that uh, direct link with the British state. Yes, they'll have some uh, familial loyalties and and, and of course, some history and, and heritage
0: there, but there's a real disconnect starting. And I think the emergency period really highlights that. What about the reaction of the Irish soldiers who remained in the Defence Forces during the emergency? How did they perceive the ones who left, who deserted and who joined the British Army in some cases and in other cases just went home? So I have a
2: chapter in the book
0: titled Reaction to the Deserters, and I broke it down into the various levels,
2: be it from government, the Guard even response, communities I touched on. One that I really wanted to get into initially was how did fellow soldiers feel? And unfortunately, I just could not get the data, maybe the, the quotes, or that insight and that perspective. Now, what I would say is, post emergency, Valera makes a, a speech in the wake of emergency power legislation that brought in the blacklist. He praises the soldiers who, who quote unquote, stayed at home uh, and done their duty. You know, almost as as a has a bit of a sideswipe uh, to those who had obviously not done so and had moved on. But I, I would say that the it's an interesting one it, it, it's a very interesting question and unfortunately i didn't get i didn't get quite enough information to to put much much content of that perspective into the book so what i would say is or what i could say is would be only maybe guesswork on my own perspective i have, i have no doubt i believe i have one quote in the book from from a fellow soldier who came back after the war as a veteran back to his community and he was told in no uncertain terms to uh, <laughs> uh, Without using the foul language to, to bugger off, but yeah, I, I didn't quite get enough on that. But I'm sure there was guys there uh, that absolutely resented it, and there was probably others there that maybe understood it, be it for, for financial, economic reasons or otherwise.
0: Kian, one thing I want to make clear though is the deserters are a minority of Irish people from the south of Ireland who joined the British forces. Isn't that right?
2: That's that's correct.
0: And so, like, when we think 70 odd thousand at least from the, the Free State or era joined the British forces?
2: That's right, correct.
0: Okay, now, of those 70,000, you're not talking about all the ones who survived and who came back to Ireland being punished after the war, are you?
2: Not necessarily, no. no.
0: So, you're talking about the people who, who deserted the Irish army, they're the ones who were on this blacklist, and how severe is the punishment? That they get, or the exclusion that they get when they come back to Ireland after the war.
2: Yes, so it depends on the perspective of, I suppose, individuals. So there's, there's some bad stories. When I, when I was speaking with next of kane there are some bad stories that some guys came back to their own communities and they were, they were shunned badly shunned. Some, of course, that didn't maybe have a family business or a friend network to get back into employment, could not do so with any government state job. Uh, So straight away, their employment opportunities were were curtailed and limited to a great degree. Uh, They had lost any pension benefits that they had built up, uh, because some of those guys, of course, had served in in the army previously in the emergency era. Uh, So they lost all what pension they could have availed of at a later date. But in terms of of a punishment per se to to the deserters, it it was probably more so on a personal nature within, within their communities. So again, some of the more famous deserters that were still alive actually during 2012 had spoken on the fact that they never, ever spoke on it. So once the pardons came out, they were comfortable to, to have interviews, but they kept this uh, tight to their chest for, for many, many years. So I suppose if you were to say that is a punishment, absolutely on a, on a, on a personal level. But in terms of, of the government or a top down, Authoritative punishment for the deserters. Apart from being placed on the backlist, there wasn't much beyond that. Uh, not, not from an official capacity.
0: And do we have you know a comparison with other countries, like and how did they punish desertion after the war?
2: Yes, I suppose. I suppose if you look at some Eastern European nations, this is um, when you first touch on this topic. You'll have passionate people argue that, well, my God, other countries, you know, dealt pretty severely and executed deserters and, and, and aspects such as that. So when you're comparing maybe these European countries, um, during, even during the second War and post-World War II, and even beyond that in certain, uh, certain respects, maybe these guys, you could certainly argue these guys in, in comparative, uh, within that comparative context, got off relatively light as I said, no formal punishment. So they could integrate back into society upon their return, if indeed they did return, and the vast majority probably and, and likely stayed in Great Britain. But for those who did come back, there wasn't much impinging, I would argue, upon them re-entering society, except, of course, what I already mentioned regards the, the blacklist and the various years that, that they were ousted from any, any opportunity to, uh, gain a state job.
1: So, Kane, do you think with the, the pardon and everything, that sort of put the whole issue to bed? I, I got the impression, I think, at the time that it was like we are pardoning men who did the right thing and went to Britain to fight the Nazis and they've been treated appallingly by the state. Yes,
2: it's, it's something... I don't think it is put... To, well, it, it's, it's put to bed in one respect. It is they've been pardoned and, and that is as, that's the state of play right now. But in terms of how we commemorate, and again, given your perspective, how we maybe celebrate, commemorate, remember these gentlemen, it is something that's, I think, going to cause a bit of controversy down the line. Again, from my own Mowgli and perspective, again, they've been pardoned. So it'll, it'll be an interesting one now in uh, in a number of years' time when, when perhaps Defence Force personnel are there at at various ceremonies or, or at memorials commemorating all deserters from an organisation. And I, I don't think many would have, of course, have a problem with that. It's just an interesting uh, it's an interesting dynamic that will come to play. I think with the Irish deserters, if, if you look at, go back to what I said about the First World War, veterans returning and, and those who sadly did not, I think Irish society has come to a good compromise as to how we dealt with that from uh, 2014 to 2018. If you looked at maybe, of course, last year with with the whole controversy about the RIC commemorations and and how it was uh, shot down fairly quickly given uh, the backlash, I think the Irish deserters from the Irish Defence Force who joined the British Army, not just those who deserted, but those who then joined the British Army, I think they, if I want to crudely put it on a little line, lies somewhere between our acceptability of the First World War veterans and maybe the RIC not as easy as just just commemorating them as a whole i think i think this the the deserters specifically there's a bit of ground there to to walk over yet i I just don't think irish society will come quite so much along as we did maybe with um with the first world war veterans but it'll be interesting it'll be interesting terrain to, to to walk over once we once we eventually get there
0: Okay, so Kian, that was fascinating. And can you just say the name of your book there for for all interested uh, readers?
2: Sure, guys. So the title of the book is Heroes or Traitors, the Irish Deserters of World War II. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate your time.
1: So you can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please do rate and review the show. It really, really helps us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media and let other people know. It's really appreciated and it really helps us. And thank you very much. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, until next time, thank you very much for listening to The Irish History Show.
0: Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast, because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.